From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger. I'm Mia Wagner. And I'm Michael Mikowski. And I am a candidate for President of the United States. I am going to run for President, that's correct. What's going to be different this time? We're going to win. We are going to son of South Bend, Indiana, and I am running for President of the United States. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other campaign and election experts and hear their insight into the 2020 election. And we will make America great again. This is the United States of America. There has never... To announce my candidacy for president of... This is 1050 Bascom, election 2020. Today on 1050 Bascom, Elections 2020, we are very lucky to have Professor John Peavy House on to discuss foreign policy and his take on the primaries so far. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor. Thanks for having me. All right, so we're going to kick it off with just kind of a broad question about the election. Um, So what do you think, in your opinion, qualifies as foreign policy experience for the presidential candidates? That's a great question. I think, well, they're all claiming, they're all going to claim different things, obviously, that kind of suit their own profile. You know, and none of them, I would argue, have extensive, you know, none of them like uh, George H.W. Bush, you know, were CIA director. That said, most of them also have more than someone like, say, Bill Clinton, who when he came in had been governor of Arkansas, but that was kind of it. He had no kind of federal level experience. I'm not making a any kind of plug for any candidate here, but Biden has a lot of experience. I mean, not from his Senate days. He's always been very active on Senate foreign affairs and Senate foreign relations. And so back into the Cold War days, he was sort of very active in in foreign affairs. That said, Warren, Sanders, others, you know, if you're in the Senate, you more likely have interactions on foreign policy issues. And so it's never a given, in my opinion, that someone in the House will be focused on foreign policy. I think it's always a bit of a given that someone who's been in the Senate will at least have had to have think pretty closely about certain foreign policy issues. You know, then there's the whole like being in business, like sort of the Steyer Bloomberg, you know, formerly Yang uh, candidacy, you know, is just being the head of a big corporation an international corporation is that sufficient experience i think many people feel like on the like on the trade questions or maybe even finance global finance questions like sure you could make a passable case but you know have they thought deeply has a bloomberg thought deeply about you know us relations with israel and the peace process or north korea and iran you know i'm you know i know i'm sure they have positions on that but they probably not had to take a lot of votes. There's not any big record of them formally taking positions on some of these more like security oriented foreign policy positions. Regarding foreign policy experience for the presidential candidate, mm-hmm. we've noticed uh, and kind of talked about in some of our previous podcasts how that has not been a huge focus right. um, in the primaries, in the debates, or just amongst candidates' platforms. Can you speak mm-hmm. a little bit to that? So as a general matter, those of us who study IR, of course, always lament that you know elections are almost never won or lost on foreign policy issues. You know, they're usually more about so the domestic political issues, the exception can come at times of war, you know, and there's a major war going on, like the Gulf War. Uh, you could even argue, you know, post 9-11, you had this window where a lot of people were talking foreign policy. But if you look, you know, in the last few years, I mean, the world's obviously there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in the world, but it's not getting the attention, especially in the U.S., that A, some people think it should be. Uh, or B, if it is getting the attention, it doesn't seem to be resonating. You know, we've had crises with Syria. We even had uh, President Trump 
you know, doing first intervening in Syria, then pulling out of Syria, then sort of staying in Syria. And, you know, this gets about a day's worth of attention and then it kind of goes away. And so given that what seemed to be the current dynamics of the what I would call the foreign policy news cycle, none of these uh, candidates have any incentive, right, to go stick their neck out and say, I'm going to bring peace to the Middle East or, you know, I'm going to patch things up with Russia or, you know, I'm going to I'm going to stick it to China, you know, like none of them have any incentive because those issues don't seem to be the issues that are continually getting attention and that voters seem to be bringing up when they're asked, like, what are the most important issues? Uh, and again, the, you know, sort of the uh, cynical person in me says, well, it's always kind of been that way in, in presidential elections most years. But then it's like, I think there are some special dynamics of this election, you know, dealing with everyone's focusing on Trump, either very pro-Trump, very anti-Trump, that just sort of take a lot of these things off the table, whether it's impeachment, whether it's, you know, impeachment's obviously the big one, or just sort of his behavior in general. And look, some of his behaviors mattered for things like NATO, right? Like he's cast doubt on the future of the NATO alliance. So it's not to say the things he President Trump does don't have anything to do with foreign policy, but those issues just don't seem to be on the top of people's minds right now. Would you consider Trump an outlier uh, in 2016, like how much attention he did put on like foreign policy, even if it was more just like isolationist rhetoric? It was. Uh, I think he was an outlier. Well, he was an outlier in the sense if he took a lot of these issues that we consider international issues and he tried to he really tried to make them domestic issues in a way. Right. Like we've always had debates about trade. Uh, but he he made that like as as did Bernie, you know, and when he was running in 2016, make trade like a domestic issue. Right. You don't have a job because of these terrible trade deals. You don't have a job. You know, you're poor because of uh, these international this international trade that's going on. You know, why are we spending all this money on supporting these European allies? We should be spending this at home. Right. There's a way to spin all these issues in sort of a, a more nationalistic way, as you say, to make them try to resonate a little more with those, you know, with the domestic voter. And, you know, I think Trump supporters kind of grasp, many of them grasp on that. They were, they liked that idea that said, again, just a reminder, like many of the Bernie supporters too, right, have somewhat similar views on things like trade and trade agreements. Whereas I think those who are anti-Trump sort of immediately all ran to the other side saying like, oh, no, 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 we need to, the liberal order, right, and, and NATO and our alliances, those all need to be supported. And that could be another reason, by the way, that you're not seeing a lot of discussion of foreign policy in this election is the Democratic candidates, unlike Clinton and Sanders in 2016, kind of agree on a lot of this stuff. There's not a lot of differences between them on some of the major issues. And so just not a whole lot of hay to be made to, to bring these things up. I know you talk in your intro to IR course a lot about like norm building in international mm -hmm. relations. Yeah. What does this like what does Trump mean for norm building? Are these norms being completely destroyed? Is this something you think that after a Trump presidency will return to or like has the reality been permanently changed for American foreign policy? Oh, yeah. Good. Uh, so I think it depends on the issue. Mm -hmm. So here's a to kind of get into specifics on Democrat and Republican side. So here's one where, you know, Trump violated in the Middle East. So let's take a concrete policy thing. Trump violated what had been a longstanding norm of American presidents and not recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Right. And one of the first things Trump did is he comes in and he says, you know what? Jerusalem's the capital, right? So now go and look at all the Democratic candidates and see where they stand on Jerusalem as capital. Every single one of them says, yes, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Interesting. Right. I mean, and now Bernie and a couple others say conditional on Israel making concessions. Mm -hmm. We'll leave the stuff there. We'll leave functions there. Um, in truth, 
most of this function still happen in Tel Aviv. Like um, they've just taken the sign down off the Tel Aviv thing and okay. it says now it says consulate. But but the point is right. That kind of shit. That's an example of one of these shifts that I don't know if it's going to shift back. Mm -hmm. Things like NATO, like that policy issue. Like, are we going to continually question our NATO allies and how much they're spending? I think will shift back. I think if you would get uh, a Democrat in or even a different Republican in, uh, you would see the rhetoric quickly change and kind of go back to the way it was. You know, I think it's issue by issue. Internationally speaking, other countries see they put this all on Trump. I would say most observers internationally don't look at what the U.S. is doing and what tr don't look at Trump as being completely representative of the U.S. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's something I think yeah, I, I say this a lot in class. I feel like. Americans maybe aren't quite as good as doing as other like other populations where they sort of separate leader from public yeah. a little bit. I think we tend to meld those two a lot, both in our country and in other countries. Mm -hmm. And in fact, other countries are sort of like, well, you know, Trump's an outlier. They view him as an outlier, right, right or wrong. Um, and that, you know, if we got a different president in there, things would be different. And maybe one more question before we look at the Democratic candidates is when you're looking at Trump, too, do you consider him an isolationist or what? Where does he fall sort of in the tradition of American presidential foreign policy. Because I know yeah. one of the first things I remember him doing was like bombing Syria right away. And right. just recently he took that unilateral action killing General Soleimani. So yep. what is he like? What is the Trump foreign policy doctrine? Well, that's what people have been searching for. And that, uh, you know, that goes to this question of, you know, is he all over the map? Is there kind of an underlying thread of a doctrine or something you could find there? I don't think so. I personally think he sort of takes these things uh, you know, day by day. I don't think there's a common thread that you can draw through a lot of these. As you say, on one hand, he says, uh, well, like take Syria, for example, as you say, like he begins, one of the first things he does in response to this chemical weapons usage is bomb Syria. You know, two years later, he surprises even his own generals and says, okay, we're getting out, right, which seems to be like on a whim. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the Republicans in the Senate stand up and they're like, you can't do this. And so he backs off a little bit. But we're still mostly withdrawing. And so, you know, I think it's very for him, it's very situational. Okay. He's constantly trying to think about what's good for the U.S. Today, that may be one thing. Tomorrow, that might be the opposite thing. Um, personally, I don't think that's a strong way to do foreign policy. But again, I would also say, despite what ironically, despite what I think some of his supporters would claim, he's not as ideologically driven about certain, like, like isolationism, right. you know, like he does get involved sometimes. Mm -hmm. We do intervene sometimes. Um, I think if he happens to be in front of the right people to make the right argument, he'll do those things. Um, so I don't think there's kind of a deep ideological sentiment that's going on there. And, you know, theoretically, you can tell horror stories about people who are ideologically motivated too, right? And so, yeah, So, but I don't see... Like, I don't think there's a Trump doctrine. Okay. Let's put it that way. Sure. So would you call it more just ad hoc? Yes. I think I think this is, we're in the era of ad hoc foreign policy un under Trump. But again, maybe that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, I think there, again, depending on the specific issue, you could imagine flexibility and not being hidebound to certain policies could be a good thing. But I could also imagine from certain vantage points like alliances where people want continuity, you know, it's like, oh boy, you know, that's that could be problematic. All right, so back to the Democratic primary candidates. As you mentioned, a couple of them are heads of big international corporations. Can you dive a little bit more into what parts of that you think may qualify as foreign policy experience and, and where that's a shortcoming? Sure. So, look, where it could come in as good experience, uh, first of all, you know, 
as head of a corporation, you're oftentimes at least to have knowledge, even if you're not actively doing any management about sort of, you know, large companies spread over a large geographic area where you've got to coordinate lots of activity to all come together to produce one set of outcomes, whether it's a product or et cetera. And, you know, part of that's what foreign policy is doing. You've got the military, you've got intelligence, you've got State Department, you've got all these pieces who are all in theory trying to move in the same direction. But of course, problems pop up and they fight each other, et cetera. And so, uh, and, and the fact that, you know, these MNCs and large firms tend to have a lot of uh, fingers, you know, in the global supply chain. And so just having that sort of underlying knowledge about global trade, global finance, large bureaucracies and the way they work and sort of bringing disparate parts of different bureaucracies together, I think that's a that's if I were making a best case for someone with corporate experience to do foreign policy, that would be it. The downside is, you know, oftentimes, you know, firms don't have their own militaries anymore. They used to. Um, uh, and so there's aspects of managing things like national security that uh, and frankly, diplomacy. Right. I mean, this was the you know, this was the concern about Trump coming in. And I, you know, I think there's been some reason to believe it's a concern sometimes, like as a CEO or as someone who can just say you're fired or I'm just not going to buy from you anymore. I'm not going to interact with you anymore. You can't do that. Right. In international relations, you can't say, well, I'm going to pretend you don't exist. Um, and we kind of do that with Cuba, I guess. But um, but then, you know, but then that has limits too, right. Um, North Korea. And so. You know, I, the limit is, I guess, put a different way. I think one limit from coming out of the corporate world is when you're negotiating in the corporate world or you're managing the corporate world, there's almost always, almost always kind of a win-win possible, right? It's about the relative size of the win you're going to get or what the other person's going to get. In international relations and foreign policy, someone's usually going to lose. You know, I'm not going to fall on my sword at a negotiating table because, you know, it's a bad hypothetical, but I'm not going to fall on my sword because I'm going to get $8 million instead of $10 million out of a deal. You tell me I can't have my capital. You tell me I can't have my ethnic group can't live on this side. I'm damn well willing to fall on my sword and fight you for that. And so it can be, you know, I'm very much, uh, you know, playing up the non-rational choice approach to conflict here. But, you know, this idea that, you know, in a business or an economic setting, all things are negotiable, all things are divisible. Jerusalem may not be divisible, right? You know, it's, it's just like when you get into security and foreign policy issues, sometimes you have kind of different values attached to things. And that's the, that can be a challenge for someone, I think, coming out of that world into the State Department or into the presidency. Joe Biden has touted his experience in foreign policy, often claiming he personally knows most foreign mm -hmm. leaders or lots of foreign leaders. Should voters care about this? Do voters care about this? That's a good, I, don't, I can't think of any actual empirical work that's been done to see if that's something that seems to trigger people on candidates, um, good or bad. But because um, you can imagine both ways, right? You could imagine someone saying like, oh, well, yeah, if, if I care about foreign policy, I might care about that. If I don't care about foreign policy or if I am more of a nationalist or sort of isolationist, I might view that as a negative, you could imagine. So I don't I don't think so. It's certainly a you know, he should be making that claim. It's true. Mm -hmm. um, whether it gets him anything, I just, I kind of, I kind of doubt it. I mean, you think about the last few people who have been elected, right? I yeah. mean, I, I immediately think of like Hillary Clinton's experience as secretary of state or senator right. compared to Donald Trump's 
lack of experience. Exactly. Or again, right? Like uh, Clinton versus Bush, Clinton, governor of Arkansas, former governor of Arkansas versus H.W. Yeah. Bush, former director of the CIA, right? Like yeah. no one cared. And and what was interesting about that 92 election is we were in the middle of some major foreign policy crises. Yeah. We had yeah. just invaded Somalia. Haitian refugees were coming. Like, you know, all this stuff was happening. And, yeah. But it was the economy at that point. And, you know, Obama, Romney, you know, Obama, McCain. McCain clearly had a better claim to foreign policy experience and military service, right? And it didn't mm -hmm. matter. So, again, us poor IR people, just uh, we're never going to be important. I just want to touch on one interesting thing you brought up, too, is looking at the other side. Mm. So when mm -hmm. American leaders or Democratic primary candidates are yep. criticizing or evoking foreign policy and mm. other leaders of different countries, I'm thinking of Bernie Sanders and how he sometimes mm. – or not even sometimes, he did it on the debate stage, calls out Saudi leaders as thugs, as murderous thugs, right. um, calls Israeli policy racist. Yeah. How do you think that will affect if Bernie Sanders became president or if just broadly any candidates make those claims and become leaders? What does that mean for our foreign policy with that country? Well, I think it immediately sets up you know, some skepticism from that country. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if, if Bernie becomes president and he's been calling the Saudi leaders thugs, then things are going to start pretty cool with Saudi Arabia. Right. And so then the question is, you know, again, candidates say all kinds of things. And then the question is, once they're in office, like, what do they do? Do they actually change? Look, Trump, The what was fascinating about Trump saying he the, actually moving the embassy in Israel was that every presidential candidate for years had been saying they were going to do that. And no one ever did, because then once they got into office, all their advisors were like, hey, this is not such a great idea. So, you know, Bernie may be murderous thug now, but when he gets in, you know, and he's surrounded by State Department officials and military officials, they may tell him, look, you got to cool this and reach out and, and make yeah. things make things OK. And then he may push back and say, no, no, I'm going to still call the murderous thugs and and things are just going to be chilly between us for a while. Um, so so I would say two things. One is especially if it's consistent rhetoric that's kind of getting repeated a lot, I think it does can have a chilling effect if that person gets elected. But two, the question then becomes policy. Does that translate into policy sure. beyond the rhetoric? And that's, I think, a much more dicey question that history suggests can go either way. Yeah. Look, most of these Democratic candidates are aligned. I think Bernie, I see sort of Bernie and Warren as being a little more similar than the rest of the Democrats, just on a few issues. I think Bernie would be a little more nativist, if you want to say, like in the sense of not rhetorically, like Trump can be, but in terms of policy, like Bernie's not going to go intervene in some humanitarian crisis somewhere. He may say he he says, you know, oh, people suffering everywhere are suffering. He's not going to go intervene. That's not his. I don't think that's his what he wants to do. That doesn't want to be. He doesn't want that to be his legacy or his mark. <laughs> a Biden foreign policy would look a lot like a Clinton or an Obama foreign policy. Uh, I think a Bloomberg foreign policy would look a lot like those foreign policies as well. Klobuchar, I'm less clear. You know, Klobuchar has probably said the least when it comes to foreign policy. I'm kind of having a more difficult time evaluating her. That's not a criticism, I just think. But yeah, and I, I don't mean that as a judgment on any, either Trump's or anyone's. I just think, I think the general emphasis and direction would be slightly different for like a Warren and Sanders from what I've read than say a, a Biden or a Bloomberg. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor. Um, it's been awesome having you on the podcast. Thanks. Thanks a lot for having me. For more information about the podcast and to submit questions regarding the 2020 elections, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, and subscribe. 
Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom, Election 2020.